Well, church, let's open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, we're going to consider the whole passage today. Uh, let me start and ask you a question. You can answer if you want. Um, what's something that once lost, it's hard to find again? Man, you picked the thing that I was waiting to say later. Trust. It's true. Trust is a hard thing to, once it's lost, to be able to find it again. And that was like number three that I was going to use, because that's like the main point of the message today. All right, let's talk about the other things you can lose. You can lose keys, you can lose your phone, but those are just going to be jokes. I trust. What happens if you depend on someone and they don't come through? Think about just how meaningful this is for kids, right? How many times I've seen lots of like TV shows, movies, where there's like tension between dad and kid, and dad says, I'll show up to your game, I'll show up to your game, I'll show up to your game. Does he show up? What's kid going to think next time when he says he's going to show up for the game? Or a spouse says to the other one, don't worry, I'll do the chores, I'll do the chores, I'll do the chores, I'll do the chores, and then why was in the garbage taken out again? Trust. We rely on each other in relationships. God has created us to be creatures of community. But trust is one of those things, greater than keys, greater than your phone. Even time can be lost, but there's another day. Maybe respect, you know, maybe but money. But trust once lost is really hard to regain. Especially even, even in times of suffering, as it relates to our faith. We're following the story of Naomi and her family. And Naomi, if you remember, her husband died. Her sons died. And they died when she was in a foreign land. And she left her home because there was a famine. And she was just looking for food. And she lost everything. And now she had two girls to take care of. And she said, just go home. I can't take care of you. One of them went home. But the other one, Ruth, Ruth stayed. But Naomi still, she felt like so bitter. Even wondering, like, God, why did you do this to me? Maybe she was wondering, how can I actually trust that God will come through if all of this has happened? Maybe you've asked these questions before. Maybe you're asking them right now. When we don't feel like God can come through, it's hard to get through the day. When we don't feel like God can come through, it, we don't want to open our mouth and sing. We don't want to talk about how worthy he is. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to read his word. But today in the story of Naomi's family and her suffering, there's a change and a turn for the better in the story. God shows up in such miraculous and wonderful ways that if the question was being asked, can I actually trust in God? The answer in this passage today is absolutely. Even if you feel hopeless, you can trust that God will come through. If you feel hopeless today, or you've been lingering in suffering, or you're not trusting God, today's message is going to show you that the same God who is trustworthy for Naomi and for Ruth can also be trustworthy for you. Even if hope feels lost, trust that God will come through. There's a lot to read today, so instead of reading one specific passage to stand together, I'm going to progressively read through the whole chapter of Ruth chapter 2, and I want to explain this, what's happening as we go. Chapter 1 ends with suspense. They left 
full from Bethlehem. They came back empty. They left because of a famine. They came back, and now it's harvest time. And the reader is left wondering, we're left wondering, are things going to turn for the better for Naomi? Is God going to come through? And the answer is yes, extravagantly. And God shows his extravagant kindness through an exemplary man named Boaz. Let's read verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The author is telling the reader something that the main character, Ruth, doesn't quite, write, uh, quite know yet. The author wants us to know that there's a certain family member of Naomi's who could possibly provide for Naomi in her suffering. So in our cultural context, if something happens to you, like a, a work-related injury, or uh, you need provision, or some, maybe, maybe the government can take care of you. But in our context, if you are a vulnerable person, widow, orphan, something like this, widows like Naomi were supposed to be provided by their next closest relative. And the author wants us to know that there's a guy who could take care of this suffering widow. And the author wants us to know that he's a worthy man. Worthy man means, one, he's got money, but more importantly, two, he has a good reputation. So it leaves us wondering, could this guy actually help? But then we transition from hearing about this guy Boaz to seeing how Ruth actually puts into action the oath that she made to Naomi. In the last chapter, Ruth swore an oath that she would be devoted to her whole, for her whole life to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth married one of Naomi's sons. Her sons died, but she, Ruth didn't go home. Ruth stayed with Naomi and committed her life to her. So they're back at Bethlehem, and they're widows. They can't provide for themselves, but... There's a way that they can work to be able to get the food they need. So Ruth's like, all right, I'm going to work. Verse 2, look at it with me. It says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of, of, uh, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, go, my daughter. One of the blessings of God to his people in the old covenant was that they would have a land that rests in peace and doesn't have trials and war with their enemies, and that their land would be fruitful. And if people weren't landowners because they were vulnerable people like widows, like Ruth and Naomi were, they had a provision in which they could provide for themselves even if they didn't own their own land. And that provision was called gleaning. And Ruth's like, okay, I'm going gleaning. So what is gleaning? A gleaning is a part and a provision that vulnerable peoples have to be able to collect the leftovers from a harvest that's brought in from someone else's land. It kind of went like this. Someone has a landowner, is a landowner like Boaz, so he hires three teams of people. The first team of people was generally a group of guys who would go into the field at the time of harvest and reap the harvest with a sickle. You know what a sickle is, right? It's that like, like knife-looking thing that's like curved like a, like a C. So they would uh, go into the fields, grab the stalks of grain with the one hand, slice it with a sickle in the other hand, and then leave it behind them. And they would go through the whole field and cut everything down. 
Team two then was a team of women who would come and gather the stalks on the ground together and bind them together into bundles. Then they would be transported to a, a place called the threshing floor. Team three would come in and they would have to separate or remove the grain from the stalks so that it could be ground down and made into flour. Now, the grain was like covered in a shell, right? The grain is covered in a shell called chaff, and it would be very tedious to try and like peel the chaff off every piece of grain. So what they did is they would get a hard object, grab a bundle, and like repeatedly whack it on top of the hard object. This is threshing. And that would separate the chaff and the grain. Then the grain would be gathered together. It could be roasted and eaten, or it could be ground down and used to flour, to bake cakes or bread or something like that. Now, so where does gleaning come in? Gleaning, so people like Ruth, would be like Team 2A that comes into the field. After the men with the sickles and then the women with the uh, binding together the stalks, gleaners could come in. Now, the men were commanded in the law, don't trim the stalks all the way up to the edge. Leave the edges, all right? Gleaners could then go in afterwards and collect grain from the edges that were left untrimmed. And then the women who bundled them together were commanded in the law, like when you're transporting them to the threshing floor, if stalks fall down, don't worry about picking them up, just leave them there. And then gleaners had the right to pick that up as well. It's very, it's gracious and kind of the Lord to be able to have that provision for vulnerable people to go and provide for themselves. But the reality is gleaning was a lot of work for very little reward. Uh, in Markham, I've seen pretty regularly um, older gentlemen on bicycles driving around with huge bags on the back of their bike. And I didn't know what they were doing at first. And one, uh, one time I saw, I went out to work, droving across my Highway 7, and I saw in the morning a guy on a bike with huge bags. And then I drive back in the end of the day, and I saw him again on Highway 7 with the same bag, and it's a bit more filled. And one person told me, he was like, yeah, these, these guys, they're going around on garbage day collecting empties from recycling bins. Because if you collect empty, like, beer bottles and return them to, like, LCBO or something, you can get, like, a, a small refund. And even if you collect a lot, though, like, this guy was out all day long. It's not a lot of reward. A lot of work. But what, you've got, like, 10 cents a bottle, and you collect 100 bottles? I don't know. I'm not good at math. How much money are you making there? 10 bucks? 10 bucks of work for eight hours, uh, $10 of, of compensation for eight hours of work is not very much. And that's kind of what gleaning was. Like, good to get something, but really wasn't much. But what we see here is that when she went into glean, she worked hard, but she got way beyond what she could ever think she could get because God showed his kindness through this man, Boaz. So let's keep reading and we'll see what happens. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, And so she went out into the field and uh, gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to part of the field belonging to Boaz. Oh, she just happened. Who was part of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Oh, he just happened to come. Usually he does his work and just, he just happens to be there the same day. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, like the foreman, the supervisor, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, oh, she's the Moabite woman, the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz hears that this woman, this Moabite woman, that's probably the same person whose story he's heard about before. He knows about Naomi. The whole town apparently has heard about Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth, and what Ruth did for Naomi. And Boaz knows Naomi's like Elimelech's uh, wife. And Elimelech could have been like a cousin or something like that to, to Boaz. So Boaz hears that some foreigner shows this amazing love to one of his family member's wife. And he's like, I got to meet this girl. I've heard all she's done, and, and he knows the love that Ruth has shown to his family, and he kind of feels like, I want to show something in return for everything you've done, committing your life to be devoted to this widow who's part of my family. So we'll see in verse 8 how great and extravagant his kindness is. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. So she, he's welcoming them, giving her privilege. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's protecting her. Apparently they lived in a time that was so wicked that like dudes would assault women in the open fields in broad daylight. But he's saying like, hey, guys, you touch her, you're coming through me. What else does he do? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink where the young men would drunk. Usually young women would have to draw water for themselves. But he's like, no, 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 my guys are working for you. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to me, your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. Foreigner gleaners were not welcomed to eat with the paid workers, but she was. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed over to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she, sat, she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not reproach her. So she was supposed to be in like team 2A that went in after the bundles were taken away, but she was allowed to get special access even while the bundles were being collected and take from the bundles, and she could even take the bundle itself. What's important to see here is that Boaz gave her special access that she didn't deserve, and that allowed a tremendous amount of um, food to be acquired that she couldn't have expected. She's a foreigner, but she's not treated like a foreigner. She's treated like a part of the family. And because she's given such special access to be able to collect in a way that gleaners no didn't normally deserve, what she brought home was mind-blowing. Actually, let's keep reading, and you'll see how Naomi, her mother-in-law, is like beside herself when she sees this. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. 
Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. All right, so I'm telling you this is a lot. It's an ephah of barley. How much is an ephah? Well, an ephah is about a tenth of an omer. Okay, I know, <laughs> I know that's not helpful. Scholars who understand ancient measurements uh, recognize that this equaled to about 29 pounds of grain. So let's help put that in context. In contemporary ancient cultures like Babylon, it was normal that a paid worker, a hired citizen, one day's wages was about one to two pounds of grain. She got 29 pounds. So in one day, someone whose status was less than a citizen, less than a paid worker, gets about a month's wages in one day. It's kind of like, imagine a man who got laid off because of downsizing and he just needs some kind of job. So he's got a family to provide for, so he just delivers pizzas. Making minimum wage plus tip. Uh, I don't know, before tax you might get like, depending on tip, twenty-two dollars to $2,500. Right? And let's say he delivered a pizza to your house. And uh, it was a $30 order. What's a generous tip, do you think, to a, for a pizza guy? What percentage would be generous? 15%, let's be even a little more kind to give him 20%, all right? We'll give him 20. So 20% of $30 is like six bucks, right? Because 10% of three to, uh, 30 is $3, multiply that to six bucks, right? That's pretty generous. How would this guy react if you pulled out a wad of cash and gave him $2,500 tip for a $30 order? How would his wife react if he goes home and gets next month's rent on one or next month's rent and more on one order. Wife is going to be beside herself. And so was Naomi. Let's keep reading verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out what and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. This is the woman who we saw in last chapter was so bitter and so depressed and so confused about why God was doing this to her that she didn't even acknowledge Ruth's presence. Even after Ruth gave her the most committed act of loyalty in almost all of the scriptures by devoting her life to her mother-in-law, even though she couldn't provide for her, her mother-in-law's response was the silent treatment and a cold shoulder. This woman, Naomi, was in like a spiritual coma. But she sees the evidence of God's love right in front of her, and she is woken up and wants to know who, where, how. And then she finds out, halfway through verse 19, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of, of ours, one of our redeemers. We'll learn more about what redemption and being a redeemer is next week. But essentially, the redeemer is the title given for that family member who was the one who had the social responsibility 
to care for the widow and the person who is vulnerable. And, and Naomi sees that this guy who might be the guy who could provide for them does this for them, and she finally is woken up from her spiritual coma and finally sees a glimpse of hope and finally again believes that God hasn't forsaken her and that God is still with her. Now, you might be feeling like Naomi felt when she was in a spiritual coma. You might be going through a time of suffering right now, or maybe you remember what it was like to go through a time of suffering, where so much happened to you, and you were so burdened and weighed down by the pain of life, either your own failure or what other people did to you, or things happened that you didn't expect, or you lost something, and when this happens, we can feel like God is against us. When this happens, we can feel like we're going to a spiritual coma and we can't trust God and we're just wandering around in a void and a fog. But even though it felt like God had left her, he hadn't. Even when hope feels lost, we can trust that God will come through even while we're waiting, even while we don't see it. He did it for Naomi. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can do it for you. So now we want to look back through the story and give you reason to trust in God. Saying trust in God isn't some Sunday school answer. It's not some coffee cup Christianity. It's not some cute Twitter hashtag. There is substantive reason for you to actually put your faith and trust and rely on this unseen God. And I want to show you four reasons from this passage based on the four characteristics of God's nature that are revealed here to show you why you can trust in God. Why should you trust in God? Four characteristics of God's nature that demonstrate four reasons you can trust in God today, even through your suffering, even though you feel like you're in a spiritual coma. Here's the first reason. You can trust in God because God is good. Nothing in this, nothing in this story happened by accident. Did you hear how I kind of intentionally read the story in a cheeky way when it says that Ruth happened to go to Boaz's field and Boaz happened to come from Bethlehem? It's hard to miss it in the English language, but this is what the author's actually doing in his original language. He's intentionally trying to be cheeky. To say like, to use words that sound like chance or random, but we know it's not chance. We know it's not random because we've seen in the story already how God has clearly been evident in it. The story says that it was because of God's judgment that the famine came and they had to leave. And we recognize that God is in control and God, Naomi saw that God was the one that allowed her family to die. And it was God's visitation of the land that allowed the harvest to come again. Nothing has happened in the story that has been outside of God's control. And this isn't either. But it's hard to see this in our suffering. To admit that God is in control and in his control he's working for our good. We want to see a clear sign we want to hear like a voice audibly speak out of the clouds. We want to see like a bolt of lightning or a letter in the mail or somehow my, my noodles just spell out the answer in my soup. That's not the way that God works in this story and that's not frequently the way that God works in our lives. 
God's design, his good design, is seen in our suffering in the same way that like a potter will mold a piece of clay. Your life might feel like just a dump of dirt on a table right now. But do you know what a potter can do with a dump of dirt? You might not see it at first when the hands grab it and start molding it and the image seems unclear, but in time it's evident that this piece of earth is molded into something beautiful. And that's what God can do in your life. You can trust in God because even though you don't see it, he is good. And here's the second reason. You can trust in God even though you don't see it because God does protect. And he can protect you. Boaz expresses this idea in verse 12. Look at that passage with me. Verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. When Ruth committed an oath to never leave his, uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, she staked her life on God to take care of her in keeping that oath. And she went, and she was in such a vulnerable position, like an infant bird is in a vulnerable position. A couple of years ago, I saw a mother bird create a nest right around the corner from the entrance of our apartment. And I saw her lay the eggs. And I saw every day going out back and forth into work. I saw the, heard the birds chirping. And, and infant birds are helpless. Mom needs to provide for the food. They can't yet fly. Unfortunately, actually, one of the birds I saw fell out of the nest and actually died. They absolutely depend completely and wholly in 100% on the shelter that their mother bird can provide. And in the same tender way, when Ruth went to Israel and left her homeland, she recognized her vulnerable position and put herself wholly and truly and fully under God's care. And we see that God protected her. In times of suffering, we can feel so vulnerable so exposed, so tender, so fragile. And if you feel that way, as God cared and protected Ruth, so he can for you as well. He will prove to be a refuge for you when you trust in him. He will deliver you from perilous trials. He will give you peace in the midst of those trials. God is good. God protects. Not only that, God is gracious. When Ruth said she was going to go into the fields, she believed that she would find favor. Verse 2 says that, I will go and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. But she didn't recognize the measure of favor, the measure of grace that would be given to her. And when she receives it from Boaz in verse uh, 10, she is astonished. Verse 10 says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in her eyes, that she would take notice of, of me since I am a foreigner? She found grace way beyond the measure than she believed that she would receive. She was a foreigner, but she was treated as a citizen. She was a gleaner, but treated as a paid worker. She was a widow, but treated like family. 
And Boaz even said that he believed his kindness was only like a down payment of what God himself would give us a full reward later to come. And Christian, through Jesus, you've received grace way beyond you could imagine and way beyond you deserve. We are all, myself included, we're all um, wretched sinners. We all deserve to be separated from God and alienated from him and his goodness. We don't deserve anything from him. Our sin makes us enemies of God. Our sin makes us abandoned orphans. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer treated as enemies. We're welcomed as friends. We're no longer abandoned orphans. We're adopted and beloved children. And by faith in Jesus, we've received a down payment the down payment of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us and the evidence of the Holy Spirit alive and working in you is the proof that you're going to receive the full reward of eternity in paradise with Christ when he comes back. And the scripture says that the sufferings of this time, as painful as they are, the pain of this world isn't worth comparing to the paradise that we're going to enjoy when Jesus returns. John chapter 1 says that in Christ we have received grace upon grace. Grace heaped on grace. And you might not be able to see that right now, but look to the gospel. And you can be woken up from your spiritual coma. You can trust in him because God is good, because God protects, because God is gracious. And then here's this fourth reason, because God is loving. And he hasn't forsaken you, even in your suffering, even though you feel alone. Look at verse 20. We'll see again Naomi's reaction. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Her family was dead. She thought God was against her. But when she saw the evidence of God's extravagant kindness, she knew that even though it felt like she was alone, God's love had not forsaken her. Remember, this word kindness, as we've learned in weeks past, is that word that's translated in the Psalms, God's steadfast love. It's that never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love that God has set his heart on to show to you. And even if you feel alone, even if you feel forsaken, The cross is evidence that God hasn't forsaken you. Are you trusting in God in the midst of your suffering? It's hard. It was struggle for Naomi. But in time, God proved that even though she felt hopeless, she could trust in him and he would come through and he did come through. And you can as well. But what does trust look like? It's not the Sunday school answer, trust in God. It's not the coffee cup Christianity. It's it's not the Twitter hashtag. Real trust inspires genuine obedience. In the midst of your suffering, are you genuinely obeying God even though you feel what you feel? Suffering can exhaust us. It can so drain of us us of energy that it feels like we're running on empty and the engine will smoke out at any time. Suffering can cause the most basic of tasks to feel insurmountable. Like lifting my head off the pillow at the beginning of the day 
is like picking up a deadlift of 300 pounds. Like packing my kids' lunch, getting the food out of the fridge, is like going through a catacomb maze, and I can't even find what I want to be able to provide for my kids. It can make the basic tasks of life feel exhausting. It, some of us aren't going through suffering, but we want to help other people in their suffering, and we don't know how. Whatever place that you're in, whether you're in suffering and exhausted or you want to help others, when we see how Ruth and Boaz responded, their lives can be examples to us to show what genuine obedience looks like when I have real trust in God. Real trust inspires genuine obedience, and even in the midst of your suffering, or if you want to help others in their suffering, if you respond like Ruth and like Boaz, you can endure though you feel exhausted and you can be a real source of help for others. So if you're suffering and exhausted, then I would say, like Ruth, trust God and choose faithfulness. Real trust will inspire genuine obedience, and Ruth was suffering. Her husband died. She was barren and hadn't yet been able to produce a child, even though being married for 10 years. And now she's in a foreign land, but still, even though she was suffering, she wasn't in a spiritual coma like her mother-in-law was. She was still committed to act on the oath that she made to care for her mother-in-law. And we see in her faithfulness to be able to care for her mother-in-law. And I see that faithfulness displayed in four ways. First, girl was courageous. She remained courageous. Remember how he said, like, Boaz had to tell the guys not to assault her? They lived in a time where it was a real threat for women like Ruth to go out into the open field in broad daylight. Maybe Ruth knew this, maybe she didn't. Either way, she knew she made an oath to care for her mother-in-law. Danger or not, she followed through. Ruth was courageous. Ruth had faith. As I said earlier, she believed she would find favor when she went into the fields, and her faith motivated obedience to do it. She didn't realize the measure that she would receive, but she still believed that when she went, God would bless, and God did. She was courageous. She had faith. She was humble. She had full legal right to go into any field and start gleaning, but the text says that she still asked for permission beforehand. And when the landowner, a person of authority, Boaz, came around and gave her this extravagant gift, she didn't act like she was entitled to it. She actually knelt down and bowed and said, why do I deserve this? She was courageous. She had faith. She was humble. And man, this girl worked hard. Her work ethic is an example to any one of us today, even those of us who are in suffering. The text says that she started to work in the heat of the day in hard labor. She worked early morning to late evening with a short morning break, and she wasn't expecting to stop for lunch, but someone gave it to her. Short morning break, lunch, and then she kept going to the end of the day. And even after the end of the day, when she was probably tired, 
and she needed to beat the bundles out to separate the grain. She didn't say, I'll do this tomorrow. She worked beyond the evening and threshed the grain. And then she didn't say, I'll ask someone else to carry this home, or I'll pick this up tomorrow. Then, after working early morning to the end of the day, she carried 29 pounds of grain on her own back, back from the fields into the town. This girl worked hard. She was humble. She had faith. She was courageous. And her motivation to live a faithful life to her oath to care for her mother-in-law came because she trusted God. But in suffering, sometimes like the basic tasks just feel exhausting. And it's really hard to just even make it to lunch, let alone make it to the end of the day. And maybe you feel like that right now. The theme verse in the Locke family household right now is from us is Colossians 1.11. It says, May you be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for endurance and patience with joy. And it's hard to have those things when you're exhausted. It's hard to have those things when you're suffering. Like endurance and patience with joy, you're asking too much of me. I can juggle one of those balls. But you're asking me to juggle three of those balls? You want me to endure and you want me to be happy about it? And you want me to be patient with others? Just let me get through the day so I can get eight hours of sleep and do it all over again. May you be strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power for endurance and patience with joy. You can't do this on your own. I can't do this on your own, on my own. But God has offered his strength. When you trust in him, he can sustain you. Like Ruth, trust God, choose faithfulness, and he can help you get through the basic things of life. Even through suffering, we're still Christians. We're still parents. We're still students. We're still employees. And we can still get through each day with God's strength. But maybe you're not in suffering and you want to help other people. Boaz is your example of how God can use you. What's the type of person that God uses? Is it the person with a big social following? Is it the person with a platform? Is it the person who's well-spoken? Is it the person who's highly educated? Is it the person who has a lot of strength? Is it the person who other people look up to? Who's the person that God uses? 2 Timothy 2 verse 21 says, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, from sin, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If you want to be used by God to help your brothers and sisters and others who are suffering, character trumps competency in God's eyes every time. So like Boaz, trust God and choose holiness. That's the person that God uses. Not the strong, not the reputable, not the influential, the meek, the holy. Four ways I see Boaz walking, living a holy life. Number one, he honored the name of God. The first words out of his mouth in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, in a time where girls were being assaulted in broad daylight in open fields, he protected them. He honored God's name. He honored the name of the God he worshipped. Second way I see him living a holy life, he obeyed God's law. Gleaning was a financial loss for homeowners. He didn't care. God said he should do it, so he did it. He honored God's name. He obeyed God's law. He was merciful and just. Like I said, 
Guys were reckless. Guys were brutal. Guys were assaulting women. But he said, you touch her, you're coming through me. And then he told Ruth, you will be safe here. He was merciful to the vulnerable. He was just to the wicked. And as we've already seen, he was extravagantly generous. The guy gave someone who didn't deserve it a month's wages for a day's work. She expected pennies, but she received way more. If you want to be used by God, stop looking for a position. Sure, get some training to learn more, but first, focus on your character. God uses that guy. God uses that girl. And then finally, for any of us in whatever situation we're in, like Naomi finally was able to, let's learn to trust God and choose hope. Because we may not see God working, but she finally recognized that the Lord had not forsaken her. He could actually provide the person she needed for her good. In all of our suffering, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love is clearly seen in Christ Jesus so that at any time we can always have hope. God already gave us Christ. How will he not also give us anything else that we need? Christ was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Christ died so that we could live. Christ suffered so that we could be saved. And nothing can separate you from his love. But if you feel like you've lost hope, trust the same God that Ruth trusted. The one true living God. Even if you've lost hope, Trust in God and he will come through because he's good, he protects, he's gracious, and he's loving. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Lord, I'm thankful that we can together open up your word and consider what it says And we each individually have considered your word, but I know that you know each of us individually. You know what suffering we're going through. You know what trial we're going through. And you are able to help us. So Father, I pray that by your spirit, for each one who is in the room now and each person who has attended our services this weekend, that you would prove to be the refuge that you say you are. And that you would inspire faith so that we can trust in you. Would your Holy Spirit affirm in our hearts the truth of the scriptures that has been believed by millions generation after generation, that you are good, that you do protect, that you are loving, and that you are gracious? And would you inspire within us true faith that motivates genuine obedience so that we can be faithful, so that we can be holy, so that we can have hope, get through each day, enduring in your strength. For your glory, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.